Hitchcock, which of your films gave you the most personal satisfaction and why? Well, probably two films. The first one is a picture called Shadow of a Doubt. The other film is Rear Window, because to me, that's probably the most cinematic film one has made. There has been so much written about Alfred Hitchcock, anyone attempting to say anything new automatically risks committing plagiarism. Or, to put it in another way, putting a big foot in a bigger pile of cliché. Icy blondes, innocent men, secret messages, MacGuffins, blah blah blah. But, some clichés actually contain a germ of truth. And one thing said of Hitchcock's 1954 masterpiece, Rear Window, is said so often, it is almost a cliché in itself. Jeffries? Congratulations, Jeff. For what? For getting rid of that cast. Who said I was getting rid of it? This is Wednesday. Seven weeks from the day you broke your leg. Yes or no? Gunnison, how did you ever get to be such a big editor with such a small memory? My thrift, industry, and hard work. And uh, catching the publisher with the secretary. Did I get the wrong day? No. No, wrong week. Next Wednesday, I emerge from this plaster cocoon. James Stewart plays L.B. Jeffries, a photojournalist confined to a wheelchair because of a broken leg suffered on assignment. Holed up in his Manhattan apartment, he is tended to by his long-suffering girlfriend and fashion model Lisa Carol Fremont, played by Grace Kelly. In the hands of another director, say Ernst Lubitsch, Billy Wilder or Stanley Donen, or more recently James L. Brooks, Rob Reiner or Richard Curtis, this would be an ideal setup for a rom-com. But because it's Hitchcock, we know something malevolent is going to happen. As early as the 1930s, Hitchcock was called the Master of Suspense, a title he had coined for himself. And in a 1950s interview, he bemoaned that he was typed as a director. If I made Cinderella, he said, the audience would immediately be looking for a body in the coach. So it is only to be expected that during the course of Jeff's recuperation, a murder mystery unfolds. So far, so familiar. So here comes what is so often said about the film. It isn't really a thriller, but an examination of cinema itself. As we look at Jeff on screen looking for clues, Jeff looks at his own screen, the rear window of his apartment, and he sees a whole gallery of other screens, each one presenting variations on his relationship with Lisa. She's a beautiful young girl and you're a reasonably healthy young man. She expects me to marry her. That's normal. I don't want to. What's abnormal? I just, I'm not ready for marriage. Every man's ready for marriage when the right girl comes along. And Lisa Fremont is the right girl for any man with half a brain who can get one eye open. Oh, she's all right. But you do have a fight? No. Father loading up the shotgun? What? Please, darling. It's happened before, you know. Some of the world's happiest marriages have uh, started under the gun, as you might say. No, she's just not the girl for me. Yeah, she's only perfect. One thing we can say about Hitchcock's films is that there is often more to them than meets the eye. Look carefully at the story's structure and you will notice the number of times Jeff falls asleep. When this happens, Hitchcock obligingly fades to black. Then, when the new scene fades in, rather than showing us Jeff waking up, Hitchcock shows us Jeff already wide awake, and we interpret that as the plot having moved further along. But consider this. The murder mystery is a dream. The movie opens with Jeff asleep. After his nurse has visited him, 
Jeff then falls back to sleep. He is still asleep when Lisa arrives into his apartment. It's a terrific moment. As Lisa sneaks up on Jeff, Hitchcock slips into slow motion, drops the soundtrack into silence, and Lisa kisses him. How's your leg? It hurts a little. And your stomach? Empty as a football. And do you love life? I'm not too active. Anything else bothering you? Mm-hmm. Who are you? For a director so adept at filming murder scenes, this interlude is more than romantic. It's one of the most erotically charged moments in classical Hollywood cinema. Feeling her lips against his, Jeff stirs into life. It's Prince Charming and Snow White in reverse. Awake now, Jeff chats with Lisa. They have dinner and then argue. Lisa wants a proper commitment from Jeff, i.e. marriage, but he won't give it. Upset, she leaves. With the relationship now on hold, Jeff is alone. He hears a woman scream, a scream, I might add, no one else hears. Next thing, we see him asleep yet again. Disturbed, Jeff wakens in the middle of the night, which is when the games begin, and the rest of the picture is what Jeff plays out in his head as a way of deciding what might become of himself and Lisa should they marry. Will they stay together, happily? How will his travel assignments impact on their marriage? What if he doesn't marry Lisa? Will she end up on her own, just like Miss Lonely Hearts, the single woman in the ground floor apartment? And what of Jeff? Will he come to resent Lisa? Will he end up murdering her? All these possibilities are on display in the rear windows of all the apartments backing onto the central courtyard, into which Jeff has been staring for the last six weeks of his convalescence. And at the end of the film, when Jeff's convalescence is extended, what is he doing? He's asleep. You never left the apartment where is until she? yesterday yeah, morning. What time? 6 a.m. 6 a.m. I think it's about the time I fell asleep. Too bad. Thorwalls were leaving their apartment at just that time. You a little foolish? No, not yet. The thriller element is the engine that drives all of Hitchcock's mysteries. But what starts that engine? Romance. Hitchcock practically admitted as much when he described the key to the mysteries as the MacGuffin, the element that the audience thinks is important, but really isn't. What is important is the relationship between the girl and the boy, and all the trials and tribulations they go through are really only endurance tests to see how strong their attraction to one another is. If you don't believe me, consult the Cornell Woolrich story, It Had to Be Murder, from which the rear window screenplay was adapted. There is no romance in that story at all. I'm in love with you. I don't care what you do for a living. I'd just like to be part of it somehow. It's deflating to find out the only way I can be part of it is to take out a subscription to your magazine. I guess I'm not the girl I thought I was. Now, there's nothing wrong with you, Lisa. You've got this town on the palm of your hand. Not quite, it seems. Goodbye, Jeff. In a curious way, Hitchcock had already made Rear Window. Not once, not twice, but three times. In 1956, he would officially remake his 1934 picture, 
the man who knew too much. But the planning and execution of Rear Window had been prepared for in the makings of Lifeboat, Rope and Dial M for Murder. All those films were heavily restricted to the one location, the single set playing an enormous role in the story's telling. And in preparing for Rear Window, Hitchcock's production designers Hal Perriera and Joseph Macmillan Johnson oversaw the building of what was until then the largest set ever built on the Paramount sound stages. So big were the sets that the basements to those stages had to be uprooted in order to fully realise the six storeys and 31 apartments that were built for the film. And as the construction team went about building the set, Hitchcock went about building his movie, storyboarding it to such detail that the drawings effectively became the pre-cut version of the film, the very guide the editors would use when the filming was done. If Hitchcock were alive today, he would surely have used Pixel Liberation Front, a software that pre-visualises every shot and camera move and times every edit. Which is exactly what David Fincher did when he made Panic Room, his own Manhattan-based suspense picture where the story is restricted to one location. Not coincidentally, if you flick through David Fincher's Blu-ray collection, you will find Rear Window sitting near the top of his favourites. Are you over 40? When you wake up in the morning, do you feel tired and run down? Do you have that listless feeling? Besides the great production design, the film also boasts an interesting sound design. There are only ever two types of sound in film, diegetic and extra-diegetic. Diegetic sound corresponds to the events on screen, dialogue, characters moving about, and in the case of Hitchcock, deathly screams. Extra-diegetic is what the filmmaker imposes over the images you see, the music composed for the film being the easiest example. From the start of the sound era in 1927 right through to the 1950s, extra-diegetic music was so common in Hollywood cinema that barely a moment went by in those decades that composers and orchestras were not working overtime to fill every moment of the story. Whether the character was lying in bed looking up at the ceiling or simply looking out a window, you had a full orchestra playing away in the background. In Rear Window, Hitchcock limited himself to only diegetic sound. Yes, we hear music, but that's on the radios. Also, a piano is being played, but that's because a pianist lives within earshot of Jeff's apartment. And if you pay close attention, you will notice it is the same tune playing over and over. Does the pianist know only one tune? No, he's not a pianist, he's a composer. And the piece of music he's working on? It becomes the film's theme tune. And when does he complete the composition? Straight after Jeff and Lisa solve the mystery slash resolve their differences. One final cliché, this time from Alfred Hitchcock himself. He liked what he called pure cinema, a cinema that didn't rely on dialogue. It is though you were looking at the film on the screen and the sound was turned off. I'm still a purist, and I do believe that film, being the newest art of the 20th century, is a series of images projected on a screen, and this succession of images create ideas, which in their turn create emotion. 
From that germ of truth, a cliché has sprung up suggesting that pure cinema is solely visual. And in this case, the cliché is not true. Pure cinema is not solely visual. That may have been the case back in the silent era, but since the advent of sound, pure cinema is the interplay between what we see and what we hear. In Rear Window, L.B. Jeffries doesn't see the murder, he thinks he hears it. Sound, vision, inside the head. That's pure cinema. Oh.